Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. And we'll just read a few verses together. Matthew 18. Watching online this morning, we trust that you'll be blessed, that you will enjoy it. We had a lovely uh, little baby dedication this morning in the first service. Went very, very well indeed. It's always a joy when you see parents bringing their children to the altar of God and to dedicate them uh, unto the Lord. I think that pleases the heart of God as well. So we want to get straight into the Word of God this morning. So come with me, please, your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. 18th chapter of Matthew. Just want to read the first uh, four or five verses. Matthew 18, reading from verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, because we dedicated that little child this morning, it reminds me again, that all human beings, there is an expectation of growth. Physically, we begin in babyhood and we end up in adulthood. We begin as a child and we end up, hopefully, as a mature adult human being with all of our faculties and sensibilities. Now, whenever you're born again, you are literally a baby in the kingdom of God. You're just a babe in Christ. And the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he alludes to this when he said, desire the pure milk of the word uh, that you may grow thereby. And so as soon as a child is born, it desires milk for its growth. And as soon as you're born again spiritually, you ought to begin to grow. And that is you go into the Word of God. Now, we understand that when you're just a new believer, you don't know any theology. You hardly even know where the books of the Bible are. Uh, But, you know, you start somewhere. And you usually start in the Gospels, which are fairly simple to understand. But then God doesn't want you to stop there. He wants you, as you go on in your Christian experience, uh, to grow up in Christ, to to understand more, particularly, uh, of His Word. And that's why it says way over there, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have, become, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Therefore, who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so there's an expectation that God has of us growing up in him and beginning to understand more as we go on. 
Now, there's different levels of that. In fact, the Apostle John, uh, he talks about that also. And in his first epistle in verse 12, sorry, chapter 2, verse 12, his first epistle, he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And so again, you'll see that there's different levels of maturity uh, expected within Christ and within the church, within God's people. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul then uh, elaborates a little bit more on this because the Corinthian church were in all kinds of trouble. They were doing all kinds of things wrong. I mean, they really, really were being very, very immature and childish when they should have been childlike. And so he rebukes them. And uh, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And in chapter 14 and verse 20, he said, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babies, but in understanding be men, be mature. And so again, there's that expectation as we grow in Christ that we're not little children anymore in that sense. We're not childish, but we grow up to be fully mature people of God. But even if you are a fully mature believer, even if you are at that stage, then you still ought to be childlike. Not childish, but childlike. God always wants us to be like children in the sense of innocent and, and, and trusting and believing and all of that. Now, if a Christian is childish, it means they're immature. It means they're infantile in their behavior. It, it simply means that they're stunted in their emotional and spiritual growth. Somewhere along the line, they get stuck, they stopped, and they didn't grow any further. And that's not a good thing of your believer because the expectation from God is that you keep growing. But somebody who is childlike, they are endearing. They're admirable. They possess lovely qualities. It's lovely to be around childlike people because childlike believers are Christ-like believers. But childish believers, all kinds of problems come from that. Now, not for the first time did Christ's disciples bring up the subject of who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. And that's the context for the very verses that we read at the beginning. And here, here's Christ. This is the last supper. This is the last meal he's going to have with them before he goes to the cross. He's literally just hours away from dying on the cross, laying down his life as the Lamb of God. So he would be the real Passover Lamb. And while he's talking to them about this, they're thinking all the time, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, and you can understand to some degree why they were thinking that because they fully believed that Christ was about to set up his kingdom on earth. And they had been with him for three years now. And naturally they thought, well, if he sets up his kingdom, surely we are going to be the ones who's going to run it for him. We're the ones who've been with him for three years. And out of the 12, there was those three, Peter, James, and John, that, that in very poignant moments in his life, 
like in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took those three aside with him. Uh, and and they, they, they saw Jesus in a very, very intimate way that even the others didn't get to see. And so quite naturally, uh, they would be thinking, particularly Peter, I'm sure, because he was a spokesman for the whole group, and I'm sure he thought, well, I'm going to be right up there whenever Christ comes into his kingdom. And James and John, I mean, they definitely aspired to that because in Matthew 20, they actually sent their mother. The mother of James and John went to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, make it so that my two sons were on your right hand and on your left. So all this was going on while Jesus is talking about himself going to be the Passover lamb. And so he has to teach them to be childlike and to be, have servants' hearts and to be humble. Now, when it came to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus dealt with that issue in two ways. Uh, after James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, can my two sons sit in your right hand and on your left? Then Jesus said to the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So in other words, Jesus said to him, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you be a great servant. If you want to be a leader in my kingdom, then you be a servant. That's the way it is in my kingdom. And that was alien to their thinking. Because remember, they're living in the time of the Roman Empire. And they could see the hierarchy within Rome. They could see it within the soldiers, with centurions and legionaries and so forth. So they naturally thought, well, when Christ sets up his kingdom, there's going to be a hierarchy of rule, and we're going to be way up there at the top. And Jesus, uh-uh. He says, no, no, don't think that way. In, in Matthew, sorry, the, the second way that Jesus dealt with this issue is in Matthew 19, where he brings a, a, little, a little child and he sets, he sets that child among them as an example. In Matthew chapter 19, And verse uh, 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from them. Now, the disciples were indignant. Whenever, whenever Jesus would be preaching and be teaching, if mothers were there with their little children, they would bring them over to Jesus and say, bless my child. And the disciples, you have to understand culturally, in those days, especially with the men, children were to be seen and not heard. And how dare these women interrupt the great rabbi when he's teaching? And so they were, they were angry with the woman and tried to brush them aside. And Jesus was indignant. He says, no, he says, let the little children come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. I love little children. And he picked them up in his arms and blessed them. So here he's now in the midst of his disciples and he sets a little child in the midst. He sets that little child in the midst and he's trying to show them importance of being childlike. 
In verse Matthew 18, verses 2 and 4, Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so childlikeness is a quality that Christ wants us to possess. But what does he mean by being childlike? What are the qualities of childlikeness? That's what we want to share this morning. Well, first of all, Jesus said, being converted. Unless you are converted. Now, normally when we use that term converting or converting or conversion, normally as preachers, we're talking about somebody we want them to humble themselves and to repent of their sins and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, what he's done for them on the cross and accept him as their savior and be converted. That's normally what we think. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. We ought to do that. And people ought to humble themselves and repent and believe Christ and come and be converted. But in the context of what we're talking about here, Jesus is already talking to the converted He's ready talking to those who trust him. He's ready talking to those who are believers. All right? He's talking to his disciples. So what does he mean by saying to them, except you are converted? Well, converted here is the same roughly as repentance. It means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of mindset, a change of attitude. So Christ is telling them, unless you change your attitude, unless you change your mindset, Unless you change the way you think, because it's the opposite to how I think. It's the opposite of my kingdom. So you have to change. You have to think differently from here on out, unless you are converted. Because at the moment, all they were thinking about was position and status and power and influence. Whenever they would come into the kingdom, they were going to be seated on thrones. And, And Jesus actually did tell them at one point, he says, actually, guys, at one time, you will be seated on thrones, judging over the tribes of Israel, but not now. That's a long way off. You're not ready for that yet. You're far from that because you're puffed up with pride and you're arrogant and you're fighting to see who's going to be the greatest among you, not among everybody else, but among yourselves. And so he says, unless you change your mind because it was all me, 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 that sort of thing. Jesus was about to die on the cross. He was only hours from his death and all they could think about was themselves and their position in this kingdom. They need to have a different mindset. And so whenever we are childlike, our motives are pure. We're not self-seeking. We're not puffed up. We're not proud. We're humble. And we are changed. Now, the desire to be held in high regard of others, to be noticed by others, is quite intoxicating. All of us, without exception, has some ego some bigger egos than others, but some ego. And we like our ego stroked. And we need to be very, very careful because we can find ourselves constantly soliciting affirmation and confirmation and, and, and praises and all of that. And even if we're not looking for it, sometimes it finds us. Let me tell you about something that happened to me a number of years ago whenever we were visiting our daughter 
in the Philippines, who's a mission there. And uh, a good pastor friend of mine there, he had just opened up a new church plant. It was quite a way from where he had his original church. And he said to me, David, look, he says, we're not long started. We're just a couple of years into this. I'd love you to come and preach there and just see it. He says, I'm excited about it. It's going really, really well. So would you, would you come? I says, sure, I'd love to. Wonderful. So we set out early, early, early Sunday morning, drove about an hour and a half. We got there and the place was buzzing. It was just buzzing because it was a new church plant. And there's something about being on the ground floor of things when it's just starting. You know, everybody's in together and we're trying to build this up. So it was buzzing. And, and I really had prayed and, and felt I had a message for that morning for those people for that hour. And, and, and I preached it. And actually, I did. It was the right message. And I, I felt really good preaching it that morning. And, and he was interpreting for me. And we both flowed together. And that doesn't always happen, by the way, when somebody's interpreting. But we just flowed together. It was just spot on. I mean, we rang the bell. People enjoyed it. And after the service was over, people came to you and said, I really enjoyed that, Pastor. That, that was a great message. That was just for us today. Of course, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? And then the pastor, well, he was praising. He said, well, that was great, David. I really enjoyed that. Boy, he says, that was just dead on for us today. That was just great for this church. And so he was talking like that. And you know, when somebody starts to talk, like, oh, you feel, well, it's not too bad. You know, I was, I, was pretty, I was feeling pretty good of myself, really was, you know. And all the way up as we drove up, I was thinking about, I thought, yeah, boy, I, I really, I just was spot on today. I was dead on today. And then I had to preach in Claire's, Claire's church that she attended at that time. I had to preach in her church that night. So in the afternoon, I, I was just kind of basking in the glow of the morning service and, you know, and thinking it was wonderful. I says, Dad, what are you going to preach on tonight? Well, when you're, when you're overseas, you have tons of messages you can preach on, but you trust God to guide you in it. And I says, well, I'm not sure. I, th I think I'll just go with the one I did this morning. And you can understand why I said that, because, boy, uh, really, it was good in the morning. And I thought, well, it was good in the morning. It's going to be good tonight, you know. And uh, so I got up that night. And within five minutes, I knew I had missed it by a million miles. It just was awful. I mean, it was as if the words were bouncing back at the wall. And I looked at the people, and I was stumbling, and I was missing my place, and I was blanking. And I looked at the congregation, I felt sorry for them. I thought, I wish I could get out of here right now. I just felt terrible. The worst preach I ever had in my whole life that night. So after it was over, I sat down beside Claire. Now, your family doesn't spare you. She says, Dad, what happened? You bombed. <laughs> you bombed, I says, I, yeah, absolutely. Since that was terrible, wasn't it? Uh, you didn't have to tell me that. I know that. I knew that after the first five minutes, you know. And so suddenly you're brought right down, right down to earth. And any feelings of even if my ego was stroked and I felt a little bit puffed up, but suddenly you're just, you're right down there. And you see, God does that. You see, if that, that kind of just, causes me just to segue into my next point is being humble. <laughs> being humble. If we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. If we don't humble ourselves, God will find a way to humble us. And you'll know it when it happens. I certainly knew it when it happened to me. You will know it when it happens and you will feel it for sure. But it's God's way of saying, uh, 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 just keep your feet in the ground here. Be humble, be childlike, trust me. See, I was trusting myself. I didn't pray about the service that night. I felt, well, it went well in the morning. It'll be good for tonight, but it wasn't. It's the wrong one. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be greater or do greater or wanting to accomplish or achieve. There's nothing wrong with that. 
I mean, even your children, when they get a certain age, you may say to them, well, what would you like to be when you grow up? And they say, well, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a nurse, or you know, I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a pilot. My former pastor, when he would preach overseas, often he would get me to pick up his young son from school and take him home to his mom. And I would do that gladly. And uh, even as just a little boy at primary school, all he ever wanted to be was a pilot. That's all he ever talked about. And in his little room, he had all these little plastic airplanes. And he had photographs on the wall, posters of, of aircraft. And that's all he ever talked about, all he ever wanted to be. Do you know what? He's a pilot today. He, he, he accomplished his dream. And there's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong? What is wrong with ambition and high achievement. What is wrong is if we trample over everybody to get there. And many a man or many a woman has destroyed their marriage and their family and their health and above all their spiritual life has gone to rack and ruin because they wanted so much to achieve and to conquer and to be up there and to be top dog that everything else was sacrificed on that altar and spiritually they're nowhere. And you see, that's not being childlike. That's when pride, that's when childishness and pride rises up. And God doesn't want us to be like that at all. Humility is the very character of Christ himself. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that, doesn't it? It said that Christ, who humbled himself, he who was in the form of God. He was in essence God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. Came in the form of a servant. And humbled himself. And died even the very death of the cross. What humility. What condescension. That Christ would come the creator of the universe. No less according to Hebrews, that he would come and, 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 and limit himself to a human body and then die that terrible, awful death of the cross. What an example of humility. So how do we be childlike? Be converted. Let's change our attitude and our thinking. Now, we don't always get it right. And sometimes, we, as we say here, we lose the bop and we get into the flesh and we say things wrong and do things wrong. But generally speaking, generally, let's be changed in our thinking. Let's be humble. And then let's be simple. Now, when I say simple, I don't mean silly or stupid. I mean simple, uncomplicated. You know, I've, I've been thinking... As an example of this, this very thing, of just being simple and uncomplicated, and yet being sweet and Christ-like and childlike, I think of, of Kenneth's late mother, Betty Rollins. And for those of you who've been here for many years who knew Betty personally, I mean, she's such just a lovely, gracious, gentle, simple, uncomplicated person. And, and she used to always sit beside Sally at every service. If Sally sat there, she'd be there. If she over there, she always just sat beside my wife and kept her company. And, you know, during the, the last days of her life, uh, you know, she died at 49. And during those last days of her life, uh, whenever I go visit her and we break bread together, uh, she was such just a, a lovely, gentle, simple person. Uh, she didn't complain. She had no big highfalutin ideas about anything. 
She just loved Jesus and just loved people and just kept everything simple. And that's a lovely, lovely childlike quality to have. It really is. Another person I can think of is Gladys Aylward. Gladys Aylward was a young lady who lived, she was born in London, North London. And uh, she had just an ordinary education. She wasn't, how can I say, academically, she wasn't the brightest. And she ended up as a parlour maid in, in, in the West, West End of London to a rich family. Just a parlour maid, simple parlour maid. And uh, she got saved when she was 18. And whenever she was about 24, she was driving home on the bus one day and she saw an advert in, in, the, in the local paper. And it was a China Inland Mission with advertising for missionaries to China. And she just felt drawn to that. She just felt, Lord, I really want to be a missionary to China. So she applied to the China Inland Mission. And they accepted her on the basis that for, for a few months they would train her and they would teach her theology and they would try to teach her the Chinese language, which is not easy to learn. And so she was, she was up for it. And so she started, but at the end of three months, she, just, she was really, really struggling with the Chinese language. And she was only 24, and the board felt that to send her as a young woman of 24 to China on her own without knowing the language and, and just learning theology, it, it was just a bit too much because China wasn't an easy place to go in those days. And so she was devastated. And so she went home and she put her Bible on her bed and she took her purse out. She emptied it out and there was two pennies fell under her Bible. And she says, God, here's my Bible, here's my money, and here's me Use me for your glory. <laughs> simple prayer. She's a simple person. Do you know what? God really did use her for his glory. Even the work that she began is still going to this day. And so she saved for the next two years every penny she could scrape together so she could get a little ferry to get a bus, to get a train, somehow, some way to get to China. She had two suitcases, one with pots and pans, a little stove, the other with some food. And the clothes on her back and her Bible. And that was it. Why she went. She eventually got to China. And there was an older missionary there called Jeannie Lawson. And Jeannie Lawson took her under her wing. And they wondered, how, how can we reach the Chinese people? And so they, they opened up an inn. An inn. And they called it the Inn of the Eighth Happiness. And it was a, it was a Chinese thing of... of, of Virtue and honesty and love and loyalty. These are all the virtues, so there's eight of them. So it's the end of the eighth happiness. And so travelers and traders would come through and they would stay there for the night and they would share the gospel with them, share Jesus with them. They would go on their way. And they, they did this for, for a long time. And then this was the era in China where, where the little children that were born, the little girls, they would, they would bandage up their feet tightly and tightly so their feet wouldn't grow. They had little tiny club feet. That was very cruel. They felt that was their culture to do that. But the Chinese government put a stop to it and says, no, you can't do this anymore. And they asked Gladys Aylward, would she become involved in reaching out to her community and try to stop this, which she did and was very, very successful at it. But one day she was out and about and she met this lady who had a little, a little girl and the lady was starving and the child was starving and they had no money, they had, no, they had nothing. And the lady said to Gladys Aylward, 
No, the lady was selling the child for nine pence. And she came to Gladys Aylward with this baby that she's selling for nine pence. And Gladys felt really strongly that she needs to do something because if she doesn't, this child's going to die. So she bought the child for nine pence and took it home and adopted this little girl and gave her a new name called Beautiful Grace. So little nine pence became Beautiful Grace. And that was the start of taking in children who had no parents or who were given up. And she, she adopted five. Now, she's a single woman. She adopted five on her own, and she ended up with 100 children Amen. in a children's home. In fact, when the Japanese tried to invade China, uh, she had to flee with the 100 children into the mountains for her life. In fact, she was shot in the back at one point, and she spared them all. She saved them all. So here's a simple woman, a simple, simple woman who was childlike in her attitude, who totally trusted God, who was very, very humble, just got on with it, just believed God and did a tremendous work. Now, at one point she came back to England to, to, on furlough. And uh, missionaries, as they do, then they're invited to churches to speak of their work. And so she went around various churches in England to speak about the work she was doing. And a guy called Alan Burgess heard her. He thought that would make a great story. So he wrote a biography about her talked to her and wrote the biography about what all she was doing. And a year later, that was 1957, a year later in 1958, somebody in Hollywood read the book. It was called The Little Woman because she was only four, four foot tall, small little woman with dark hair. And by the way, when she, she entered into the Chinese culture, for the first 34 years of her life, she was British. For the last 34 years of life, she took Chinese citizenship and she dressed as a Chinese, she had as a Chinese, she talked as a Chinese, she really felt Chinese. And so in 1958, Hollywood decided to make a movie and they called it The End of the Sixth Happiness. And they got Ingrid Bergman, who was the top lady actress in Hollywood at the time, who had made a movie called Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart. They got her to play the part of Gladys Aylward. Gladys Aylward didn't like that because Gladys Aylward was four foot tall Ingrid Gerben was a big, tall, Swedish blonde girl, about five foot nine or ten. So she didn't like that. She didn't like it also that they changed some of the things that she did. For instance, they had Ingrid Bergman playing her. They had her kissing a guy in the movie. Gladys Aylward never kissed a man in her life. So she was upset about that. And then Ingrid Bergman at that time had entered into an illicit relationship with some Italian film director, and she even hated that more. So she wasn't pleased. But do you know what? The movie came out went all over the world and it made her famous around the world because everybody wanted to know who is this Gladys Aylward that this movie Hollywood's made a movie about. Here's this simple, simple lady with a simple life, uncomplicated, unsophisticated, and yet the world now knows her and even Hollywood made a movie about her. Now, years later, Ingrid Bergman, she said that she was so moved by making that movie that she never forgot it. She never forgot making that movie. She said it was the most moving movie she ever made in her life. She says, to think that I played this little woman who did so much. And so she decided, years later, she decided to seek her out, to find her and to talk to her. And by this time, the communists had taken over China 
And she wasn't allowed back into China, so she went to live in tai, Taiwan, in Taipei, Taiwan, again where she opened up a children's home. Still there to this day, by the way. And Ingrid Bergman then found that out, so she went all the way from America to Taiwan to meet Gladys Aylward, who now was her hero. But by the time she got there, Gladys Aylward had just died. She died of influenza. And she went into the room where Gladys Aylward's bed was, and Gladys Aylward's the lady who helped her in the children's home. She was there and she said, when Ingrid Bergman saw that bed, she knelt down and she cried buckets of tears on that bed. And she kept saying, I was so unworthy to play the part of this lady who did so much for God. I'm so unworthy. And that lady stood beside her hearing that. She started to talk to her about Jesus. And she got out her Bible and she showed her the way of salvation, and she led her to Christ. Amen. Right there in that room at Gladys Aver's bedside, she led her to Christ. And she was a believer to the day she died. In fact, just shortly before she died, she died of lymphoma, died of cancer. Shortly before she died, she actually read the scriptures in, in Hollywood Presbyterian Church at Easter time. She was so moved by the simple, simple woman. So that's what I'm saying about being simple just a simple person. You can do so much by just being Christ-like. It can affect so many people. Just being Christ-like. Just being simple. And then, the last thing is being trusting. Being trusting. Children love, particularly if it's an occasion where they, where they sense something is dangerous or something is unusual, they're not sure of, they love to just grab the hand of their parent, don't they? They instinctively reach out for the hand of mum and dad and usually want to get behind you at the same time. You know, you take them around the zoo and they watch the penguins and they watch the birds and they watch the giraffes and the elephants and then you take them to the lion's cage. And if that lion just suddenly charges, even though there's that glass there, they charge at them, that child will just run behind you and grab your hand and they won't let go for the next 30 minutes until they get their confidence back. And God wants us to be like that, where we're childlike enough to take the hand of God and trust him and feel safe and secure holding his hand and him holding our hand. That's what I mean by being trusting. Not being big and, you know, proud and arrogant and feel we can do everything and we have it all and we know it all. No, no, no. God hates that. He wants us to be humble and childlike, trusting him at all times. You know, children are so naturally trusting that you have to warn them against strangers, don't you? They're just so naturally trusting, most of them at any rate. And when a child is born, it's not born bigoted. It's not born racist. It's not born status conscious. It's simple. It's humble. It's trusting. That comes later. Unfortunately, sometimes through the home or sometimes through their peers, sometimes through society. But they're not born that way. They're born with that propensity because all of us is born in sin, shape and iniquity. But that comes later. But they're born trusting and simple and uncomplicated and unsophisticated. Now, of course, you could be very academic and you could be very smart 
You could be very brainy. You could be all of that. You could have a high position and still be childlike and simple in your attitude. And God loves that. He truly does. The more childlike we are, the more we trust him, the more we trust what he does, the more we begin to trust how he leads. Because your little child will trust you how you lead them. They believe in you. What you tell them, they believe it. So they will trust you to do it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Now isn't it true that when our children are growing up and they're well behaved, you know, and they're, and they're mannerly and, and they're lovely to, you know, they're just nice kids, doesn't that reflect back on us? It really does, doesn't it? It just reflects back on us, for the most part. And if we're like that spiritually, you know, that we're simple, that we're trusting, that we're humble, who does that reflect on? Our Heavenly Father. That reflects on Him. And people see that. They see that in us. Now, sometimes we fail, don't we? Sometimes we say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing, we blow our top or whatever. The case. Sometimes we do that. But generally speaking, if we're simple and we're humble, we've been converted, we're trusting the Lord, and we walk our way humbly before him, then people see that and they say, there's a real Christian. There's a real Christian. It reflects back on him, you see. So let's today, let's become like a little child in the kingdom of God. And there's no telling how God can use you and me and you out there watching. There's no telling how God can use us as little children in his kingdom. If we're humble and we're gracious and we're loving and we're trusting and we're gentle, God can use us. Just the way he used Gladys Aylward and she became known around the world. In the 20th century, she was one of the most noted uh, missionaries of her generation and yet she maintained that humility and that simple, simple life. Amen? Let us pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have created us, made us in your image. So help us, Lord, to reflect your image in us. Help us to reflect the life that you have put within each of us. May it be Christ-like and childlike, that others will see in us something of you, that our light will shine for you, and it will be a reflection of you. So Lord, bless us this day, this Lord's day, as we have come together to worship you, to listen to your word. Now help us, Lord, to go out and be doers of it, not hearers only, but to try to put this into practice and to remember, Lord, uh, to be trusting, to be simple, and to be humble. And we'll give you all of the glory and all the honor. And thank you for every gift that you put within each of us today. Thank you for every blessing that you've bestowed. And we return the blessing to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.